All right. Well, last week, uh, we had a little bit more of an academic study uh, regarding prophecy and the study uh, of end times, uh, what scholars uh, call eschatology. A, a really big fancy word that just that means basically the study of, of last things or the study of the end of the uh, end times. Okay, we highlighted the importance of prophecy, why every believer ought to study and have at least a basic understanding of prophetic elements within the scriptures. Uh, I think you know. I tried to at least lay out some guidelines uh, for the proper interpretation of biblical prophecy, realizing that uh, some prophecy will be literal, okay? Uh, some prophecy uh, will be allegorical. And, and how do we properly identify between the two and uh, looking at the context in which they were originally written? I hope that it was uh, somewhat helpful for you guys last week. Uh, I, I talked to someone and they said, oh, that was, it was... Woo, just kind of a lot to take all in. And so hopefully it, it didn't, you didn't check your brain and we're like, okay, yeah, this is too much for me. And, and you were able to follow along a little bit uh, last week. Uh, I do believe it will be beneficial for our study through Matthew 24 and 25. Today we're going to be looking uh, at more details regarding Jesus' answer to the questions posed to him by the disciples in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24. Recall that in verse 3, the disciples, they came to Jesus and they asked him, When will these things be and what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And in his response, Jesus began by describing to the disciples what sort of things that uh, they should expect to see. And he said uh, that they would hear of and see false Christ that they would uh, hear of wars and rumors of wars, uh, famines and pestilences and earthquakes. And he said that they would, uh, in connection to these things, that the end was not yet. When these things are happening, that's not the end. Okay? Uh, that these things were, were necessary and that the disciples shouldn't be troubled by this news. Uh, and last week we noted how false Christ and wars and rumors of wars, famines and pestilences and, and earthquakes that they uh, have been going on for years and years throughout history. But Jesus did describe these types of events uh, as the beginning of sorrows. As I pointed out last week, uh, I believe in the NIV and the ESV and the NASB, it's to that beginning of sorrows, that phrase is translated as birth pains. Okay, it's the beginning of birth pains and, and signaling to us that when, when these events start to increase, when they become intensified, that we should pay particular notice. Okay, just as when uh, birth pains uh, begin to increase for a mom, uh, they increase more rapidly, they become more intense, we know that baby is soon to come, right? Well, likewise. I believe that when we see an increase and an intensification of these signs, we ought to consider them as signs of His coming. Today we're going to pick up where we left off and here Jesus continued to describe the signs of His coming and the end of the age. And last week we left off in verse 8, uh, but just for context's sake, we're going to read from verse 13 through 14 just to kind of get everybody on the same page, especially if you weren't with us last week. And so uh, will you please stand as we read our opening text uh, this morning, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, again, I'm going to begin in verse 3, and I know we've already gone 3 through 8 last week, uh, but just for context's sake, we'll begin in verse 3 
And uh, we'll make our way to verse 14, uh, just to get acquainted with our opening text. We uh, will be getting to verse 22, so uh, just to get us started to verse 14. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, be with us here uh, this morning. Lord, um, as we go through your word, that you would uh, open our eyes, open our hearts and, and our minds just to receive all that you uh, have for us. Lord, that we would uh, understand your word. Uh, as later we're going to be exhorted to uh, whoever reads, let him understand. So we want to have understanding uh, of these scriptures, Lord, that we might be able to uh, know what we are to do in response to these scriptures, if anything, Lord, whatever it may be. Father, we uh, thank you again just for the opportunity to gather together as a church body. Lord, I do pray just for the the environment that we're in, Lord, uh, the, the ACs, that they would work, that they would keep us cool, uh, Lord, that that would not be a hindrance or a distraction for what you want to do in and through us here this morning. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and just look forward with anticipation and expectation that you're going to speak to us through your word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Looking at verses 9 through 14, uh, you'll notice that there's a slight switch in subject matter. Okay? Uh, in verses 4 through 8, Jesus described uh, really the general landscape of world conditions. Uh, but here in verses 9 through 14, Jesus describes the personal struggles that his followers will face. Okay? The discussion Jesus has with his disciples, as I mentioned last week, uh, here on the Mount of Olives, it's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Okay? Uh, and both Mark and Luke also record details uh, of this Olivet Discourse. Now, interestingly, uh, Luke's record gives to us a time marker for when these personal struggles will take place. Okay, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus was speaking about the wars and rumors of wars and the earthquakes and the famines and the pestilences, uh, the, the birth pains as we talked about, or the beginning of sorrows. And in verse 12 of Luke 21, he states, 
But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And so Luke said that that before all these birth pains start to increase uh, and to intensify, before that time, that the followers of Christ would experience great persecution and that at the hands of world leaders. Uh, These details, they coincide with what Matthew writes about in verse 9 when he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so uh, looking at that word tribulation, uh, mentioned in verse 9 of Matthew, 24. It's a word that is often associated with end times study, tribulation. Okay, uh, and for good reason, as we're going to see later on in our study today. Okay, there is a very distinct difference between the tribulation that the followers of Christ will experience, mentioned in verses nine through fourteen. And the tribulation that is going to take place at the end of the age. Okay? And the main difference between these tribulations deals with the source of that tribulation. Okay? The source of tribulation Jesus is referencing in verses 9 through 14 as we read. It tells us that it will come from this world. Okay? That it will come from the people within it. Okay? Um, according to those verses, hatred and death will come by all nations. And offense and betrayal along with hatred will come from people. People that we love. People that uh, we care for. Uh, they will churn against us. We will be betrayed uh, in this type of tribulation. And so the tribulation, very clearly, it comes from the world. From the rulers of the nations. From people. Okay? But the tribulation that comes at the end... Okay? will not be from the world or from its people. It will be from God. Okay. Revelation chapter 6 through 18 speaks of the judgment of God being poured out upon the earth. Seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, each depicting different events that will take place upon a Christ-rejecting world. And the tribulation spoken of here in verses 9 through 14 is not that same tribulation. Okay? This tribulation spoken of in verses 9 through 14, well, it is the tribulation that was promised for all those that desire to live godly, as mentioned by Paul in his second letter to Timothy. Okay? This wasn't even a new promise given by Christ to his disciples. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, he warned them to beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And we know that this happened. Okay? It happened to the disciples, Peter and John. They were imprisoned and beaten for preaching in Jesus' name. We read of that event in Acts chapter 4. It happened to many in the first century church, as well as throughout history. Just as we noted those events from 4 through 8, they have been events that have happened throughout history. This same tribulation and this same persecution uh, has been experienced 
through the church throughout history. Uh, if you ever have a chance to read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, okay, and you can learn of some of the afflictions and tribulations that followers of Christ have gone through throughout history. And even to this day, okay, you can click on uh, the news. You can go to CNN or you can go to uh, all sorts of different uh, news sources and find that persecution persecution of Christians and the saints is still happening around the world today. Okay? Especially as you consider just uh, the Middle East and Christians that are being uh, tortured and killed for their faith. Okay? It is still happening today. Okay? Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica that they were actually appointed to afflictions and that they shouldn't be shaken by them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. In fact, he told the believers in Rome that we as followers of Christ ought to glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And so we see the promise of God in His Word to use the tribulations, the trials, and the difficulties we go through to produce in us something greater. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18 through 18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. As we go through different forms of trials and tribulations and persecutions, we must keep our focus, we must keep our eyes upon the Lord. And we must realize that the victory has already been won. Okay? And we've already obtained it in Christ. And so we need to trust that He will see us through as we go through those trials, as we go through those tribulations, the persecutions that we face. And, and you know, persecutions that we face, let's just be a little bit honest, right? Compared to some of the persecutions that going around the world, we don't have it that bad. You know, we might have someone at work that kind of gives us a rough time for our faith. But, but we still, going through those situations, we know God is with us. God is going to see us through. And so when we go through these things, we have that confidence and assurance that Christ is going to be in us, that Christ is in us, that Christ will be with us. He'll lead us through it. And, and we can just focus upon Him. The, the victory has already been won. In verse 13 of chapter 24, uh, it talks about, uh, des- describes those that are able to endure to the end and how they will be saved. Okay, now some people have misinterpreted this portion of Scripture to be talking about salvation. Okay, this is not speaking about spiritual salvation. Okay, we know that because our salvation is not dependent upon our own workings, our or our own ability to endure. It's not like if we don't endure, we give up or we fail, we're not saved. Okay, And so this isn't talking about spiritual salvation. Our salvation has been granted to us because Jesus Christ was able to endure. Okay, We're told that He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
He has been victorious. He endured so that we do not have to endure. And so this then is, is speaking about being saved from tribulations and trials that we encounter. Uh, those that are able to endure will eventually be saved from their tribulation. Uh, you know, the trials and tribulations we face, they will not be eternal. Okay? They too shall pass, as we like to say. For the things which are seen are temporary, as we already quoted, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so this idea is these trials that we go through, if we just endure through the end, God's going to get us through. We're going to be saved from those trials. It's not talking about our personal salvation. Christ endured the cross. We don't have to endure and earn our salvation. Okay, moving on, some look at verse 14 and they conclude that Jesus, if you look there, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You know, and some people read that and conclude that Jesus cannot come back until the gospel is preached in all the world. And they hold to the belief that, that Jesus is being limited or that Jesus is being held back by us not going out and spreading the gospel to unreached people groups. I do not believe that that is true. Okay? I, that is not what verse 14 is saying. Okay? If you look at it, verse 14 simply states that this will happen. That the gospel will be proclaimed okay, throughout the whole world as a witness. And then the end will come. Okay, as we look at that, we realize that the emphasis here is not upon the church getting the gospel out, but the fact that before the end comes, before the end, every nation will have had an opportunity to hear the gospel. Okay? How God will do that is not said. Okay? I, I do find it interesting that that uh, even just a few decades after the birth of the church, Paul, in writing to the Colossian church, he spoke of the gospel as already being preached to every creature under heaven. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Uh, Paul believed that this was already fulfilled back in the first century. Okay, Paul also, in writing to the Roman church, he explained how creation itself testifies of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Okay. Uh, I, I do believe that it is possible that there's uh, uh, something that is going to happen before the end will come that will stand as a great testimony and witness to the truth of the gospel. Okay. I will suggest one event. Okay. Uh, my suggestion to you is that uh, something like the rapture of the church could easily be used as a means to preach the gospel as a witness to all nations. It will be a worldwide event. Okay? Am I saying that that's how God's going to do it? That he's going to fulfill this worldwide proclamation through the rapture? I'm not saying that. I'm just suggesting it could be uh, used. Um, the scripture doesn't tell us how this will happen. And so, so when scripture is not clear, we don't want to make a hard line stance and say, absolutely, this is how it's going to happen. Uh, every nation will have had the witness of the gospel presented to them at one time or another before the end will come. That's what verse 14 is telling us. Okay? This next portion of scripture that we're going to get into uh, is going to have us diving back into the Old Testament. And so uh, let's read it and get into it. Verse 15, we'll read 15 through 22. Jesus continues, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation... Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. 
And then Matthew puts this parenthetical thought in there. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop or on the housetop, not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Okay. Jesus here brings up something referred to as the abomination of desolation. Okay. Um, The abomination of desolation is something that Daniel prophesied about back in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. Uh, And so I want to make our way there this morning. We're going to turn to uh, Daniel chapter 9, okay, uh, and and see what this is all about. And so if you guys want to make your way there to the book of Daniel, uh, just a a few books over to the left, uh, if you've got an English Bible, um, Japanese Bible to the right. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, after seeing uh, a, a vision, about a couple different uh, rams in chapter 8 and hearing the interpretation of that dream by Gabriel. Uh, uh, Daniel was praying and interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel, confessing both his sin and and the sin of his people, Israel. And and that's when Gabriel came to him yet again. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, uh, you'll know this. But if not, uh, the book of Daniel... uh, uh, there are a number of dreams and a number of visions that take place uh, that Daniel is able to see and then he will be given the interpretation of those dreams or those visions by the Lord. And the Lord uses him in a mighty way uh, to speak prophetically of things to come. Well, Gabriel comes to him in chapter 9 in verses 24 through 27. And, he, and it reads... This is Gabriel again, and he's speaking to Daniel, and he says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Verse 26, he continues. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even unto the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay. 
Now this prophecy spoken by Gabriel to Daniel is often referred to as the 70-week prophecy. Okay? Uh, this prophecy is a very interesting prophecy in that it speaks of two major events that will happen at two different times. Okay? The first event that the 70-week prophecy speaks about is the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Okay? In verse 25, Gabriel declared, From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, we'll do a little bit of math, not a lot. Okay, seven plus 62 is 69. Okay, and so 69 weeks, okay, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah will appear. Now this word uh, weeks, it actually can mean a, a week of years. Okay? And so a cycle of a seven-year period is likened to a week. Okay? Um, and so it, what it says here, uh, each week correlating to this, uh, not an actual literal week, but a week of years or seven years, 69 weeks, therefore, is meant to refer to 69 seven-year cycles. Okay? Following along so far? And now we've covered this before. Okay? We, we've uh, done this in regards to all the math and how it works out. So we're not going to go into that again because I've already discussed that uh, previously when we talked about the triumphal entry. Okay? Uh, when you do do the math, from the command to restore and build the walls spoken of in the book of Nehemiah, you will find that the prophecy leads to the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, making his triumphal entry and declaring himself as Messiah. Okay? Very incredible. You can look into it, all the numbers and how it works out. Uh, but an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Okay? Started with the declaration that Nehemiah uh, to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Okay? And from that date, count them all out. That's when Jesus came in on the, on the triumphal entry. Okay? The second event that the 70-week prophecy correlates to is something referred to as the tribulation. Okay? You see, there's still one more week of the 70-week prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Okay? Daniel, uh, or, or excuse me, in Daniel 9, verse 26, it says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The, the 62 weeks came after the 7 weeks. And so what verse 26 is saying is that after the 69 weeks of years, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Okay? And, and this cutting off, Isaiah actually explains in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8, when he declared, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the wicked but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah prophetically is picturing for us and referencing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And how he was murdered alongside criminals for our transgressions, but buried with the rich. If you guys recall the details of what happened after the crucifixion, it was Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy and prominent man of that day, who asked for the body of Jesus that he might bury it within his own tomb, a very... Uh, uh, what they believe to be a very beautiful, uh, hewn-out rock. Uh, and so, uh, 
he was buried amongst the rich. And so we see here that this is a, a picture of Jesus, how he will be cut off from the land of the living. Uh, the phrase, but not for himself, there in verse 26 of chapter 9, uh, that it actually uh, is better understood in some other translations as it states, he will have nothing. The Messiah will come, but he will not receive his kingdom at that time. He will be cut off. He won't have, the, the, the thought was the Messiah would come and set up an earthly kingdom. But he says, but he will, he will not have it. He will have nothing. He'll be cut off. Okay. Daniel describes in verse 27 that after the Messiah is cut off, there will arise a prince that will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. This one-week covenant is the final week of the 70-week prophecy. During this final week of years, the prince... okay will make a covenant with Israel to, to protect them from their enemies and to permit, we know, the rebuilding of the temple because there's going to be a temple. It's going to be destroyed, verse 26, but verse 27 talks about sacrifices going on. So we know that the temple will be rebuilt. Okay? I didn't put this in my notes, but it's really interesting. If you think of end times and the, the rebuilding of the temple, there's actually something called the Temple Institute, and they have all the plans and all the preparations to rebuild the third temple. Okay? And they are ready, just waiting for someone to come in and say, yes, you can build it right here. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of going on, tensions with the Dome of the Rock and where they want to put the, uh, the temple. So uh, interesting, uh, this idea of another temple being built. Okay? All right, let's go back in here. All right, uh, halfway through this covenant, Halfway through this seven-year period, this prince will break his agreement with them and bring to an end to the sacrifice, and he will commit what is known as the abomination of desolation. Okay. Now, Second Thessalonians. Okay, if you want to turn there, I, I think I popped up here. Second Thessalonians described for us what will happen. Okay, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes about the day of the coming of Jesus Christ, and we read, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This man of sin, the son of perdition, will be the Antichrist. Okay? This Antichrist will help Israel rebuild the temple, but once it is complete, he will enter into the holy place within the temple. Some people suggest perhaps a rebuilding and they'll have a holy of holies. That he will enter in to that holy of holies and he will declare himself to be God and he will demand to be worshipped as God. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Hey, Matthew wants to make sure you understand what's happening here, okay? He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, if you want to look back in Matthew, you can go back to Matthew. Matthew, uh, he continues... 
Matthew, uh, Jesus said, if you're on your roof, don't go into your house to get anything. If you're in the field, don't go back to get any clothes. Says, uh, he pronounces the woe or, or sorrow for those that are pregnant or nursing. Okay, uh, ba- nursing babies, the implication that it will be uh, much more difficult, that they would be slowed by their condition uh, as they attempt to flee. Okay? He said, pray that it doesn't happen in winter or on the Sabbath. These, of course, are representing other conditions that would impede their immediate escape. From seeing this happen, he says, hey, get out of town. Get out of Dodge now. Okay, as soon as you see that, you don't hesitate. Don't go grab your things. You just hightail it. Get out of there. And so he, he, he lists out, you know, hopefully these things won't happen during this time because you will be in... Uh, impeded. If it was winter and they're fleeing to the mountains without any extra clothes, it could be quite dangerous for them. If it's the Sabbath, uh, the people would be hindered by the amount of distance they're uh, allowed to travel. Uh, They would be in fear of breaking the Sabbath. Also, just public transportation in Israel, it it really shuts down uh, on the Sabbath. And so uh, this idea of not being able to escape because of the Sabbath. Why the need for a sudden, immediate evacuation? Okay, this event happens and Jesus says, get out of town. Why? Verse 21 tells us why. Okay. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This time of tribulation that will begin with the abomination of desolation will last, according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, for 1,290 days, okay? A period of roughly three and a half years, the second half of Daniel's final week prophecy, okay? This time is often referred to as the Great Tribulation, uh, uh, based upon Matthew's description here in verse 21, that it will be Great Tribulation. Uh, And so uh, it coincides, verse 21, it coincides with the events that are written in the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through 18, where God's wrath will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And if you want to know what it will be like during the Great Tribulation, you can read all about it in the book of Revelation. Some people... Read the book. Don't like to read the book of Revelation. They say it's too hard to understand, but it's it's it, it's a great book to read. I would encourage you to read it and, and to take it for what it's worth. There's a a lot of details in there that are very important for us to know. And it actually is one of the books that comes with a a promise to us that a blessing and for those that read it. So. Read the book of Revelation. If you want to know what's going to happen uh, in the, the Great Tribulation, what coincides with that, you can read about it. Time will not permit us to go and to look at all the things that happen in Revelation 6 through 18. But suffice it to say, it's not something that you want to witness firsthand. You do not want to be present during the Great Tribulation. Those days are going to be so bad that no flesh would be saved if not for the Lord shortening those days, it tells us. And the shortening of days, uh, that could mean some sort of supernatural effect upon the rotation of the earth and its axis, and the days are, are slowed down somehow, some way, or sped up, I don't know. 
Um, it could refer to just a, a shortening of the length of daylight because of a, a lack of uh, sun, uh, the stars and the different things, uh, the darkness upon the land. So maybe it's just talking about the length of day. Or it could be talking about the number of days being shortened. Uh, not necessarily the time, but how many days. Uh, each of these, the seven trumpets and the seven uh, seals and the seven bowls, okay? We don't know for sure. Uh, we can't say what is meant exactly by the shortening of these days. But it's interesting that the reason those days will be shortened, according to verse 22, is going to be for the sake of the elect. Okay? Who are these people referred to as the elect? Okay? The word simply means chosen ones. Okay? In other portions of Scripture, we see that the elect is used to refer to those that are in Christ. But we also know that in Scripture, the Jews are known as the elect or the chosen ones of God as well. So which is it? Let's look at the the context here to see if we can pick up any clues in regards to what's going on and who is this audience, who is this elect that God is protecting and God is looking after. Okay? Jesus is warning people to flee from Judea when they see the abomination of desolation happen. Jesus is obviously concerned that these people escape the wrath, the wrath that is about to begin. These people that he's concerned about are people that will be, as I mentioned, in Judea. These people would be hindered if the day happened to come upon a Sabbath. And these people would have an interest in what is taking place at the temple because they would be looking and seeing the abomination of desolation that happens in the temple. I think by looking at these details, we can come to a conclusion that this is pointing towards a Jewish audience here. Why would the church be concerned with sacrifices happening at the temple? Okay, we believe that the sacrificial system was fulfilled with Christ's once and for all sacrifice. Okay, the church wouldn't care about sacrifices happening in the temple. That's not something we believe in. Okay? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us, and there's no need for any more sacrifices. Okay? Why would the church be concerned about the abomination of desolation happening on the Sabbath? Okay? We don't follow the Sabbath law. I believe that Jesus is definitely referring to the Jews when he speaks of the elect within this context. Okay? Now, there's another reason I don't believe that this is speaking about the church that doesn't necessarily come from the context of Matthew chapter 24, but the context, uh, or excuse me, just that scripture overall, there's a message within the Bible about the church and about our place in end times. Okay? I do not believe that the church will be around during the tribulation period. I believe that the church will have been raptured by this time and will be in heaven with the Lord. The rapture is an event in the Bible that many have debated over uh, and the timing of and the details of the rapture. Uh, Some don't believe in the rapture at all. Okay, they, they say there is no such thing as the rapture. Okay? Uh, some believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, meaning that the rapture will take place before the seven-year period prophesied by Daniel, known as the tribulation. And so this is a pre-tribulation rapture. The, the rapture will happen before the tribulation. 
Okay? Some believe in a mid-tribulation rapture or a pre-wrath rapture. That's kind of a newer uh, idea out there. Okay? Uh, the, the idea or notion that the church will be around during the first three and a half years. Before the great tribulation comes around, the church will go through it. But before the abomination of desolation takes place, before the wrath of God gets poured out, they believe that the church will be raptured at that time. But they will go through that first three and a half years. Okay? Some believe in a post-tribulation rapture, where the church will be raptured after the seven-year tribulation in connection with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? Looking at these different point of views, I'm obviously biased. I have an opinion, and I'm going to share my opinion. And I, one thing I wanted to share, as I did last week, our interpretation or our outlook upon uh, eschatology and end times is not an uh, uh, is not an issue of salvation. And so if you don't necessarily line up with uh, a certain uh, eschatological viewpoint, it doesn't mean you're not saved, okay? Uh, but I do think it's important because the way that we uh, interpret end times, the way that we look at end times is going to shape how we live our life. And so it's important, I, I want to encourage you guys to pay attention and, and to know what you believe and know what the scriptures teach. Okay, but I also want you to realize that this isn't a salvation issue. But looking at this, those that don't believe in the rapture, uh, oftentimes they like to say that the word rapture isn't even in the Bible, and so we shouldn't believe in it. Okay? Uh, it's interesting enough, do you know that the word Trinity is not in the Bible either? You know, uh, I wonder if those the same people don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, which is one of the pillars of the Christian faith. Uh, so just the fact that they say, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't appear in, in my Bible, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist or that the, the doctrine is not taught within Scripture. And the problem, though, with such a statement is that it's an inaccurate statement. The word rapture is in the Bible. You see, it just doesn't, it depends on the translation that you're reading. Okay? The word rapture is not in your English Bible. No matter what translation you read, the, the word rapture is not in there. Okay? But it is in the Latin Vulgate. Okay? And I don't know if anyone here reads Latin. I don't. Okay? Uh, but if you were able to read the Latin Vulgate and you went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you would read the word rapture. Well, actually, rapture is an English word, but it comes from a, a Latin word. And so uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's writing to the church to encourage and comfort them regarding a, a misunderstanding that they had regarding those that had died prior to the return of Christ. In fact, why don't you guys turn there? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, you know, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Before that, you got uh, God eats popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then 1 Thessalonians. Okay? Or General Electric Power Company, if you're from Southern California, you know, you can Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul writes to the church and he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, some in the church of Thessalonica, they feared that those that had died uh, were going to miss out on the kingdom of God uh, that was going to come with the return of Jesus Christ. Okay? They, were, they were bummed out. They were feeling hopeless for those that died and, and they didn't get a chance to see Jesus set up his kingdom. And, and so Paul, he corrects their thinking. Okay? And he encouraged them by telling them that, that those that are asleep, okay, and that's a euphemism for those who have died, okay, uh, they're going to come with Christ when he comes to gather together his church in what we call the rapture. Okay? The word caught up in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the Greek word harpazo. Okay? Harpazo. And in the original writings, it means to seize or carry off by force or to snatch away. Now, if you read Latin and if you looked up in the Latin Vulgate, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, you would see that that same Greek word, harpazo, okay, is actually translated to the Latin word rapturus, okay, which is where we get our English word rapture. The rapture is described as a seizing or a carrying off by force or a snatching away. Verse 17 says, We will be caught up together with the dead in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and that we will always be with the Lord after that. Okay? And so the rapture is mentioned in the Bible. And so to say that there isn't a rapture, it would contradict Scripture. Just because it's not in English, we can't be so... Prideful, maybe, to think like, oh, it's not in English, you know, this word, uh, that it's not real. If you read Latin, you would read it, and you'd say, oh, there it is. Okay? The rapture of the church and the second coming of, the, of Christ are two different events. Okay? The, the rapture of the church, the Lord is going to come, but he's not going to come down to earth. He's going to come down with, a, with the archangel and the trumpet of God, and we're going to be drawn together with him. We're going to be snatched up from here to meet with him in the clouds. Then we're going to go to heaven and be with him forever. At the second coming, he's going to come back down to earth. Two separate events. Okay? The other views regarding the actual timing of the rapture, they are supported differently using different Bible scriptures, and time does not permit us to get to them all. Uh, however, this is something, uh, if this is something that interests you, I, I've been really enjoying my studies this week, and you'd like to talk more about it, I'd love to talk to you about it after service. I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, and really for two very simple reasons. Okay? Uh, I feel they're important reasons, and important point, important point of views. First and foremost, I do not believe that the church has been appointed to wrath. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin so that we would not have to endure the wrath of God. Okay, in the same letter to the Thessalonian church, Paul wrote that we should wait for God's Son, His Son, from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
Later on in that same letter, Paul would write that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very clearly, Paul describes that we will be delivered from the wrath to come uh, by Jesus when he comes from heaven. Okay? And so post-tribulation, wrath to, or post-tribulation rapture, to me, we're not appointed to wrath. Okay? If you look at a, a pre-wrath or a mid-trib or a pre-trib, those are all preceding this wrath, this tribulation. So we could look at those. Um, but I just, if you look at the idea of deliverance from wrath, it, it lines up with the character of God. Okay, recall, maybe you are familiar with the book of Genesis. Recall back in the book of Genesis, the Lord and two of his angels, they came to Abraham on their way to the city of Sodom. And the Lord asked, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And he continued to tell Abraham that he was preparing to go down and judge the city of Sodom for the great outcry of wickedness that was going on there. But Abraham, if you guys are familiar with the portion of Scripture, he had a nephew named Lot that lived in Sodom. Okay? Abraham petitioned the Lord that he not follow through with this judgment upon Sodom. Remember what Abraham said. He said this, Lord, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? With the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And you know what happened, if you're familiar with the account. The Lord said, if there were 50, that he would not destroy it. Okay. And then Abraham said, well, what if there was five less? What if there's only 45 righteous people in there? Would you destroy it? The Lord said he would not destroy it if there was 45. Abraham kept on pleading. What about 40? The Lord said he'd spare it for 40. And 30? The Lord said he'd spare it. 20? He'd spare it. 10? Again, the Lord said, I will spare it. If there are 10 righteous in that city, I will spare that city. When the Lord did go down, he there, he didn't even find 10 righteous. Okay? There in the city, uh, interestingly, as the angels were about to call down fire and brimstone upon the city, they had to usher Lot and his family out, and they said in Genesis 19, verse 22, Hurry! Escape there! Pointing them to the direction they needed to escape. It says, For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Obviously, the Lord was not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked, and so he, he had to remove the righteous. I think another example of this is seen in the flood. Okay? Before the Lord brought judgment upon the earth in the form of a flood, He sealed up righteous Noah and his family, protecting them from the judgment of God. And so we see this lining up with the character of God, that God does not judge, pour out His wrath upon the righteous like He does the wicked. He, he pulls them out. He protects them. He spares them. The second main reason, first, just that we haven't been appointed to wrath. I believe that. Second, is, is that I believe that the pre-tribulation rapture would have me waiting for and looking for Jesus Christ. If I hold to a mid-trib, well, that's how they call it, mid-tribulation, excuse me, mid-tribulation uh, or a pre-wrath rapture, I won't be looking for Jesus Christ to come. I'll be looking for these signs to come first. I'll be waiting for and looking for the Antichrist 
instead of looking for Jesus Christ. I don't think that the Lord would want us looking for, uh, waiting for the Antichrist. I believe the scriptures teach us to be looking out for and waiting upon Jesus Christ. And and only a pre-tribulation rapture allows us to do such. Paul encouraged Titus to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Holding to the pre-tribulation rapture of you and and looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, it causes me to live with the expectation that He could come for me at any time. If I'm looking for the Antichrist, I fear that my sinful self, I think I would live a more lenient lifestyle. And I hope you don't look down upon me for that. But I just think our our sinfulness would get the best of us. I think I'd get lazy. I think that I can get away with things. And then just, you know, once I see the Antichrist coming on scene, okay, well now I need to get right with the Lord. But until then, I can just live however I want and do whatever I want because the Lord's not coming until the Antichrist comes and sets up himself on the scene. And if I live that way, I'm not living with that hope that Christ could come for us. And I'm not allowing that hope of the return of, uh, of Christ and calling us, the return into the clouds and calling us home, I'm not allowing that type of, of point of view to help purify my life, to live holy with that expectation of Christ. I think that the, the tendency of most would be uh, just to live however they want and then get right when they see the Antichrist. And I just don't think that's the proper way. I don't believe that's what the Scripture encourages how to live. All right. Time's getting away from us and that's already after. Okay. All right. Well, Roy is going to pick up where we left off here in Matthew 24 two weeks from now. Okay. Uh, so read up, uh, study up, be encouraged to the Word of the Lord. Uh, today we were reminded that there's a, a difference between the tribulation we experience from this world and the tribulation that will come from God. We know that we will go through tribulation here on earth. Okay. But we realize uh, that they are temporary, that Christ promises us uh, to see us through. And we looked at great detail of this 70-week prophecy spoken of by Daniel, how it was broken up into two different events that take place at two different times. That first part of the prophecy detailed for us that first arrival of Jesus Christ uh, with amazing accuracy. Uh, and, And we looked at the second part of the prophecy that deals with this time known as the Great Tribulation. And the accuracy and fulfillment of the first part of the prophecy ought to create in us a confidence and an assurance that the details of the second part will come to pass as well. Although we cannot, or, excuse me, although we can be confident that there will be a great tribulation that comes upon the earth, we can have the same confidence and assurance that we will not be partakers of that great tribulation. Okay? We will not be partakers of God's wrath if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, you do not have that assurance. Okay? The rapture is described as, as coming in the twinkling of an eye. That's, that's faster than the blink of an eye. Okay? So don't think, well, when I see him coming in the clouds, then I'll get right with the Lord. You're going to be too late. And you're going to have to go through the tribulation. And there will be those that do get saved in the tribulation. 
And Revelation talks about many of them, how they will be martyred for their faith. You can come to the Lord after the rapture, and you can come to the Lord during the Great Tribulation, but you'll have to probably pay for it with your life. And I think it's a whole lot easier to, to live for Christ now than it will be to die for Him then. And so I want to encourage you all to make sure that you're ready. Make sure that you're ready. You're living for that hope of that appearance of Christ, calling us home to be with Him, and have that assurance that I will not be going through the tribulation. Read through it, Revelation 6-18. through 18. You do not want to be here. And we have been given the opportunity to escape it. But we must act upon the grace and the gift of Jesus Christ that's offered to us. And so I pray that we have all done so. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, uh, I know this is um, a little bit uh, academic in some sense, looking at different prophecies and how they're fulfilled and and all that kind of stuff. Lord, I'm amazed uh, to consider the accuracy of the word of God, how you wrote about things uh, hundreds of years in advance, thousands of years in advance, uh, with accuracy like no other. Lord, we, we held... We hold within our laps, within our hands, uh, the active, living Word of God. Um, and it's amazing. Father, I pray that we would uh, grow more in love with your Word, that we would know it, that we would understand it. As Matthew encourages us, let those who read understand. Lord, give us understanding of your Word. Continue to lead us and guide us through our portion of Matthew. We thank you for the blessing that you uh, are just with us and uh, leading and guiding us. Lord, give to us uh, hearts to receive all that you have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.